So one of the things I'm, I'm really excited about this season, symbolized by this ball, I am excited about the Rugby World Cup. Um, last night, there was the game of the world-ranked number one team and the world-ranked number two team. And it was touted as one of the best games ever. It started at 10 p.m. And the whole day, your pastor was debating. Will I watch that, that game or will I sleep? Because I really need that sleep for today morning. And finally, Wisdom told me, watch the first half. And I, and I was so happy about it. Uh, my team lost. <laughs> but they did a really good job. If you were not aware that there was the Rugby World Cup, or if because there's a buzz, you're wondering, what is this game all about? You're not alone. I came across this interesting meme online. Someone writes to a newspaper and says, hello, I am in Cork for three months and see that everyone is watching rugby, the Rugby World Cup. Can you explain the rules? And, the, and so the, it signed Carl from Berlin. And so here's the response. Here's my understanding of how it works. The fat guys all run into each other while the slightly slimmer guys stand in a line watching them. Eventually, the fat guys get tired and have to lie down on top of each other. The ball comes out the back of this line down and the skinnier guys kick it back and forward to each other for half an hour. Then the fat guys wake up and start running into each other again. Every now and again, the referee stops the play because someone has dropped the ball. That's the only thing you're not allowed to do in rugby. Everything else would appear to be okay. Sometimes one group of fat guys pushes the other group over the line and there's some manly hugging but no shifting like soccer. After 80 minutes, they add up the score and New Zealand wins. So hopefully you know a little bit more about rugby. And uh, you know, as I stand here, Brent, I salute you that you played rugby into your 40s. I can't imagine. Yeah, for me, um, when I think about rugby, I, 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 I I see it as a sport that is all about struggle. It embodies struggle more than any other sport. Um, it's almost like the key thing is to constantly struggle against your opponent and score a point here and there, and after 80 minutes, there's a winner. It's a game of intense physicality. You know, if you're to watch a game of rugby and the goal is to move the ball from one end to the other, it is immense, immense struggle. I see that as a Sometimes a metaphor of life, right? If you are to go into the field of life right now, it's like you, you know, stepping into a rugby game and your opponent is going to try to put you down over and over again. So contesting with each other and overcoming great odds is why people like sports. We love to see people, ex you know, accomplish extraordinary feats, especially where they have to push, you know, to push their bodies to the limits. So that element of struggle. We also see that element of struggle 
in stories. They say a great story is a story where there is tension and conflict. If the odds are too low and easy for the characters and the heroes, the story is never good. The hero must overcome great odds. Sometimes you end up being on the edge, wondering how will they make it. A couple of days ago, I got the wonderful privilege of watching a movie called Golda. And it's this sort of like a biopic of one of the Israeli prime ministers called Golda Meir. And how she was in charge during a war. And I was constantly trembling, wondering what's going to happen at the edge. That's what makes a good story. Snow White comes into the world, come into, comes into the world and finds a doting mother and father who have loved her and longed for her into life. But things take a turn when her mother dies and her father remarries and in enters a cruel stepmother whose only focus in life is being the fairest of them all in the entire land. Until the mirror responds to her and says, there is one other fairer than you, Snow White. And what does the cruel mother do? She orders one of the servants to take this little girl into the forest and kill her. And this servant goes into the forest and thinks it's wise maybe to just leave this little girl into the fate of the wild. Maybe he will be less guilty than that. It is through these struggles that this little story continues to capture minds and hearts, especially of little ones, 200 years later. My little boy the other night was wide-eyed, you know, just listening to that story. Struggle, tension, overcoming great odds. And why do we like stories and this element of stories? I think it's because they echo something about life. They rhyme with something about the reality of life because you and I and everyone who has ever lived at one point or another, they have faced a great struggle. You feel like you step into a world in disarray. You have to overcome great odds every now and then. Your life is not a smooth, straightforward journey, but it's full of detours. And so that's why sometimes we feel like a story is good. When we, when we see the hero struggle and strive, almost like trying to move a rugby ball from one end to the other to accomplish or their, their goal. So today I want to look at an aspect of the story of Nehemiah that we have been looking at for the last couple of weeks that really captures this idea of what makes a good story. The conflict and the tension captured in that. So far, the story of Nehemiah has been speaking into us, trying to awaken our hearts into how do we see the world? How do we carry the world in our hearts? How do we pray as we engage into the world? How do we realize that God is active and his gracious hand is upon us? And today, uh, we want to catch up with Nehemiah at some point, right? Once upon a time, in a far, far away land in the ancient kingdom of Persia, there lived a man who had the noble role of being the cup bearer to the king. One day, some of his friends from his ancestral homeland brought some news about the broken walls of his ancestral city and the indignity suffered by the people who were left back home after the great deportation. 
This news broke the cupbearer's heart. He moaned and wept and prayed and fasted for many days. Eventually, Nehemiah, with the king's blessing, finds his way to Jerusalem with some materials and his sleeves rolled, ready to do the work of rebuilding the wall. It was then that some unwelcome guests appeared in his story. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, they were displeased, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people. Even before the work got going, the story tells us that there are those who are not happy that someone has appeared to seek the welfare of the city. Why? Why be greatly displeased that someone is coming to do something good for another? And it turns out that they were going to continue to be a source of great trouble to Nehemiah throughout the entire rebuilding of the wall. Later on in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they do, they do not give up their attacks. They're just getting started and they will be more and more persistent. We move on with the story, chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. You can imagine him in that boardroom turning red and shouting and screaming, right? And he mocked the Jews. He said in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And the banned ones at that, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, that stone wall they are building, any fox going up on it would break it down, right? They begin the psychological warfare and they begin mocking and, and they're angry. Little later, chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, you know, there's even company. They're becoming a movement. Had that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. If acting from a distance is not working, they won't completely disrupt the process. And they still keep going. In chapter 6, we meet them again, verse 1 and 2. Now when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah and to Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of, the, of our enemies that I had built the wall and there were no gaps left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono but they intended to do me harm. What if we get rid of the leader 
Yeah. What can we do to stop? You know, there's somewhere plotting, scheming, working to to bring this whole process down and to an end. And then the story continues, verse four to uh, to six of chapter four of chapter six. Sorry, they sent to me four times in this way because Nehemiah says I'm not coming. I am doing a great job. Why should I bother with you? They sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel that is why you are rebuilding the wall. And according to this report, you wish to become their king. The letter goes on to say, we, ha- we hear you have even appointed prophets to proclaim you king. Imagine what the king will do when he hears you're doing this. If we cannot get the leader to come, let's intimidate him and break his heart and get him to stop. And eventually, eventually, as they continue with their schemes, Verse 10 to 13 of chapter 6. One day, I went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehatabel, Mehetabel, who was confined to his house. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, tonight they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Would a man like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived and saw that God had not sent him at all, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this purpose to intimidate me and make me seen acting in this way so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Right? It's like house of cards, right? If you can't get him, if we can't destroy him, if we can't fight them, now let's use his own people. Let's hire, let's have moles spying and reporting to us everything. Let's have one of them pull him aside into a dark place in one of the evenings so that he's found in a compromised situation and assassinate his character so that it doesn't continue. And when you hear those stories up to now, it is exhausting. What can a man do? What did he do to deserve all that? Why all these attacks? Sanballat, Tobiah, and company. They are displeased and angry. They mock and ridicule. They intensify their mocking. They, they become enraged. They plot to attack. They cause confusion and fear among the people. They feign that they want dialogue, but they actually want to manipulate their way in and cause disarray. They trick, they try to trap so as to smear and discredit Nehemiah. They threaten, they spy, they keep going. They are a tough and determined enemy. And to be honest, I believe that is not easy. I wonder how Nehemiah took it. It was hard. It was heavy. At some point, he tells God, never forgive these ones. You know, turn, never blot out their guilt, load up their sin against them. It's heavy. It can be heavy for anyone. It can be intimidating. It can cause you to tremble. A few days ago, um, 
we were celebrating Duko's birthday and we went to, to Brackenhurst. And one of the things we decided to do after we ate is to take a trek in one of the forests. I sort of was guiding them and telling them which path to take. And my criteria for choosing a path was which one goes farther and farther, which one goes darker into the woods. And so we found ourselves taking the longest path and walking along the perimeter, you know, finding a perimeter fence. And so we were just, just enjoying our walk, talking. And at one point I saw a flower, sort of like a a dandelion, and I was about to go pick it and show Kihoto, look, flower. You know, he likes those kind of things. And just as we were doing that, on the fence was like a homestead. And immediately, four scary dogs came running from somewhere behind the house. That moment was so scary and intimidating. I was a little ahead. Nduko was there grabbing Kehoto. We were wondering what to run. I, I, my mind was calculating many things. Is there a stick? Do not run, do not run. And then I just said, God, I hope this fence doesn't have a hole in it. It was a chain link fence. That is our only hope. I hope there's no hole in this. And, and, and God had my prayer. The dogs came. You know, they stood at that chain link. You know, they were smelling, sniffing. They, started, they wanted to dig. And when we saw they had been slowed down, we swiftly moved in. Yeah. But the thing is, it took us about 20 minutes of just walking for us to calm down. You know, that thing shook us. That thing shook us. And, and, and sometimes when you have a strong and determined enemy in life, when things are going, it disrupts you. And I think the, the hardest part is what it does to you. Sanbalat and Tobiah and their company, it can wear you, it can wear you down. What does the story of Nehemiah teach us with these things unfolding, right? One of the things is that could, they, could it be that there's no story of Nehemiah without Sanbalat, Tobiah, and company, right? Because they were included in that story, there are a couple of things that are key in this story. The broken wall, the prayers of Nehemiah, the rebuilding work, but then Sanbalat, Tobiah, and company are a core part of it. And if this story is supposed to tell us something about life, could it be that there's no story of you without versions of Sanbalat, Tobiah, and company, without some sense of conflict and struggle and, and, and strange things happening? Uh, so one of the things I think this part of Nehemiah's story, the conflict and the tension, is that, uh, you know, the, the, the entire story of Nehemiah attempts through various things to paint to us a, a, a true picture of reality. And one of the things it tells us that is true about life is that there will be trouble, there will be struggles. Jesus comes along later and says, I speak to you these things in John 16, uh, to tell you that in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. It's one thing for Jesus to say that, and then it's one thing for you to be told once upon a time there was a cupbearer, and he went about to rebuild the wall, and you to see it happening. Life in this world is not always fair and easy, if I can say that. When you look at these attacks of Nehemiah, you can clearly see that. It, 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 it corroborates what history has always been. Even when you look at many other stories in the Bible of how God moved with people, Joseph, a young innocent child, dreamy as every child could be, excited, looking forward to life, ends up in a pit, in Potiphar's house, in prison, you know, wondering what just happened. Moses, 
called to lead the people, discovers that he was given one enormous, dif enormously difficult task to lead a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And he is overwhelmed all through. Daniel, serving in the empire, in the palaces, he doesn't find it easy. Jesus himself faces such a fierce opposition that he ends up on the cross. Paul also, floggings, shipwrecks, hunger, you know, any worthwhile endeavor somehow goes through some sort of struggle. Every worthwhile endeavor at some point is accosted by its own versions of Sanballat's Tobias and company. I apologize to Sanballat, but he seems to be the, the theme word. So when I say Sanballat, it's every of those guys. Yeah. One day you wake up with an ideal to contribute more goodness into this world. You are an innocent child, unique, with a unique flair towards life until some discouraged older person whispers to you, who do you think you are? Or maybe just says, you are too much. You set out to study and make a good career. Then you end up in a chronically dysfunctional workplace. You set out to build a marriage and a family. Then you realize it's not easy. You set out to bring forth initiatives into the world and companies that will result to goodness for many. And just as soon as you get started, you realize it's like it is all rigged against you. Perhaps it's a mistake you made once in life that has greatly impacted your life. How are you to make sense of all that? And I want to believe that's why we have this story of Nehemiah, to look and, 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 and identify with another person who is struggling. A story that tells us as you come into this world excited to shine your light bright, there are those whose main intention is to keep dimming down your light. That Sanballat and Tobiah are greatly displeased when someone comes to do good for another, it doesn't just make sense. It doesn't just make sense. And I think what it's telling us is every time good sets out to work in this world, evil will always push back. It helps now and then to have these stories. You know, I've been reading fairy tales to my son. And, um, you know, there are different versions of fairy tales. There are some sanitized versions, and then there are others that tell it as it was originally, you know, conceived. And, and I'm in that one, you know, those original. And one day when I went and bought that book, the person who sold it to me told me, you know, I don't like this one very much. It has scary ghosts and giants. And I went ahead and bought because I was excited to find out why, you know. And as I'm reading these stories, I'm looking at this young little one, and some moments he's terrified. And I'm wondering, should I get the more sanitized version, you know, where the, the struggle is diminished? Yeah, but then I, I recently watched a talk. I even researched about it. And this lady said, even little children know grief. They know sorrow. And so when they hear this story and they see heroes moving and, 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 and overcoming great odds, it helps them. And so I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged and, 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 and to also offer some lesson. Um, but this, the stories are all the same. Every time good sets out to work in the world, evil pushes back and we're being told, don't be naive. Don't think you're being singled out. Don't think you're being singled out. A wise author known as Michael Mead 
um, writes and says that every life that comes into this world is aimed at a purpose and a direction. And I have loved that. In other words, he says, you're not here to be anything you want. You're here to be something specific. You were aimed towards a certain direction. And that direction has in it goodness. You are here to embody goodness and God's light in a very specific way. And you were sent into an imperfect world that has its own Sanballat and Tobias who want nothing more than taking you off your aim. This story of Nehemiah just awakens us to that. Just awakens us to that. When you reflect at your own story, what has been going on? What are the detractors and the derailments that keep coming? That keep coming? And how do you face them? Yeah. How do you face them? Every life is aimed. Every marriage is aimed. Every family is aimed. Every parenting journey is aimed aimed. Every individual self is aimed towards something. Every innocent childhood is aimed towards something. Every career, every friendship, every leadership task in this imperfect world. And so the question is, how are you going to respond when the Sanballats come? You've been commissioned into this world by God and blessed as good, here to bring about good. But when the Sanballats and Tobias in all their shapes and expressions come up, how do you respond? And, and sometimes it's one thing to see them around here, yeah? But the most dangerous and insidious moment is when they get inside of you, because that's what they aim to do. Maybe for so long, the Sanballats and the Tobias have whispered, you are not good enough. They are so prompt to remind you how you always mess up. They are so good at wooing you into hideouts of compromise in the dark. They mock how terrible you are at the life that God has assigned you. They mock and mock and even bully. Sometimes they go into an all-out attack and you experience gross injustices and even abuses, all to get you off aim. And sometimes they just take residence in us and you walk around thinking that is good you listen to them, you know. Uh, and then there's a low grade giving up on your ideals, on your ideals and your light is dimmed. But this story just reminds us that that is not the end of the story. Jesus too came into this world and having come to demonstrate God's love and goodness in a way that nobody else had ever done and facing such opposition that leads him to the cross, at one point he looks at his disciples and tells them, see, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. The message translation says it this way, stay alert, this is hazardous work I am assigning you. You are going to be like sheep running through a wolf pack. So don't call attention to yourselves. Be as shrewd as a snake and as inoffensive as a dove. Even Jesus is alluding to, the, to, to this reality and he's just saying, do not be naive about the world you live in. Instead, be alert, be wise, be unoffensive. In this world, 
there is an enemy that is not for you, and the enemy is unrelenting in their endeavors. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 9 says, Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Our faith was not bequeathed to us as, an, as a journey of ease. Unfortunately, there are gatherings upon gatherings of Christians in churches who gather to be told how they need to move towards a life of ease. I don't think that is what Jesus gave us. Jesus wanted us to see the full reality. I am sending you as agents of good into this world. But the evil that is in this world will not easily seed its ground. So be as gentle as doves and as wise as serpents. Stand firm in the faith. Resist the attacks of the evil one. And I think this awareness helps us in the face of these realities, and we are able to encounter them with strength and grace. And so this is what Nehemiah does. He remains focused, not on the problem, but on the work at hand and the grace of God upon him. He stays on that. The noise around him does not distract him. He keeps going. Nehemiah prays and works some more. Every time an attack comes, he prays and works some more. Nehemiah prayed again and again. And when they, the, the Sanballat and Tobias came to attack, he said, we will even change tact. Everyone to hold a sword or a spear and to work with the other hand. And he keeps working. He positioned his people to be battle ready. At some point, the people were terrified. Nehemiah stopped work and brought the people together and encouraged them. And encouraged them. Eventually, he tells off his detractors and he says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down to you. Why should the work stop? And I leave it and come down to you. And he continues. Eventually he says, God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands because I want to finish this. And he works all the more. I think Nehemiah redefines courage for us. And he tells us that courage is staying true to who God has called you to be and faithful to what God has called you to do. Through the ups and downs, courage is staying true to who God has called you to be and faithful to what God has called you to do through the ups and downs. There's something about Nehemiah that, and his response that stands out as, as foundational, as foundational. And, and as I was thinking about it, I can't help by, but think in these sermons that we're doing, this story is so interlink, interlinked. We keep going back to what, you know, has previously been shared. You know, as we journey through life and find that there is so much against our course, it does not mean that God it is absent. The presence of struggle and attacks is not to about the absence of God. Just because the forces are against you in something, it doesn't mean God has abandoned or let you down. But God is always present. And this is a chance to depend on God even more through his journey. And I think this could be a startling reality to discover and a bit of a disturbing one. That sometimes God will not get rid of the enemy, however much he scales up his attack. God does not stop Sanballat and Tobiah. They keep on, they keep turning the heat. They keep attacking. 
right? But at the same time, God does not leave Nehemiah or abandon him. It is a very, you'd think God will clear the way because this is a noble work, but what God does instead is to strengthen them, is to give them wisdom to respond and tactics to keep going. And eventually there's a triumphant verse in, 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 um, in chapter 6, verse 15 that says, and the wall was rebuilt in 52 days. And after that statement, you hear no more of Sanballat and Tobiah, right? God helps them and keeps them going. One theologian says, God's love keeps us from, from nothing, but sustains us through everything. God's love keeps us from nothing. It will not remove every danger and harm, so to speak, or every struggle out of your way. It will carry you through. It will carry you. It carried Jesus to the point of the cross, but it carried him through everything. And, and, and maybe we are, this story reminds us that we are never abandoned. It can be a hard truth to swallow. It can be a hard truth to swallow. We see Nehemiah. We, we see Nehemiah go through and through more and more pressure from the enemies as the story goes on. But with every stage, we see God strengthen him and enable him and thwart the ploys of the enemy until at last the wall is rebuilt. One thing you cannot miss from this story is that God was present to Nehemiah. He prays, he responds, and God shows up all the way to the end. And so I think um, what caused Nehemiah to have this posture? And I want to draw us to uh, the verse that, that Aaron shared us, with us last week. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 8 says, And the king granted me what I asked for the gracious hand of God was upon me. And I think Nehemiah never, uh, never allowed that reality to leave him. It wasn't just about the king flagging him off with a blessing. Every time he stepped into the den of of enemies and, and faced all those attacks, he knew that the hand of God was upon him. This was central to his identity. Um, in, in chapter 2, verse 20, when he was talking to the enemies, he tells them, the God of heaven is the one who will give us success. We are his servants. We are going to start building, and you will have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. He is standing on farm ground. He is standing on farm ground. He's modeling to us something so useful and helpful when you and I face our own Sanballats and Tobias, that we will approach them with different strategies. But the one thing that is so foundational is where we stand, is to remember that the gracious hand of God is upon you, that this is not something you earn, this is something you begin with. The work at hand, the enemies, the trials, and the obstacles do not have the first or the last word. The first word is always, my gracious hand is upon you. And what a comforting place to always begin and to always stand and to always move into what God has called us to do. You may be right in the midst of a horrible moment. And the last thing you can imagine right now is that the gracious hand of God is upon you. Remember Nehemiah. God's gracious hand was upon him as the king flagged him off to go and do the work. God's gracious hand continued to be upon him 
every time Sanballat and Tobias raised their mouth or sent their emissaries or tried their disruptive tactics. God's gracious hand is upon him always. And I think the big task of our lives then must be to remember this aim. The gracious hand of God is upon you. The gracious hand of God is upon you. Not just as a good idea, but as a core part of your identity. You, my beloved child, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. My gracious hand is upon you. My presence is with you to strengthen you. May these words ring true for you more than the tones of the enemy or the obstacles or the current reality, read of reality around you. May you know that God's gracious hand is upon you. And so, beloved friends, who are your Sanballats and Tobias? What have they been up to lately? What have they been up to in the past? Stand firm. Not on your own strength, but on God. We can't do this on our own. We have to stand on a foundation that God's gracious hand is upon us. We are full. We live in a society where there are so many people who are increasingly disoriented with why they're here because life has continued to dim their lights throughout their journey, telling them that they do not belong here. They have no good to offer. The Sanballats and the Tobias have been so loud. Yeah? There are many people who have believed that. But today, I think, I just want you to know, you are my beloved child. My gracious hand is upon you. My presence is with you to strengthen you. He may not remove or get rid of them, but he will carry you through and strengthen you. And you will discover that you have a new strength and a courage that is deeply true, staying true to what God has called you to do. In the end, I think what God always knows to do is to redeem the situations, to take the tones and the bullings of the enemy and turn them into fuel for growth and to discover that ultimately in the end, the wall was rebuilt. We recovered ourselves. So you may be in what could be called rough waters. You may have forgotten a couple of things of who you are. The storms may be raging, maybe in your place of work, in your family, or in any other space, maybe within you. You may be in a deep struggle inwardly. You may be so affected by a chronic self-doubt that you're just there, that you're just there. The God who aimed you in a particular direction in this world and in this life will keep you going. And we're being called to remember and to reclaim that. So let's pray. <clears throat> let's pray. Nehemiah begins to pray by asking God to forgive him and his nation. Nehemiah senses that the most important place to be is a place where we are deeply connected to God, where we are fully aware of God's presence and gracious hand upon us. And that's why Nehemiah repents. Nehemiah asks God to help him read all that gets in the way of that communion. And so as we begin to pray, 
forgive us lord forgive us as we live in these times remembering that you have aimed us for good to be a bright light in this world where there's so much darkness that keeps engulfing where there are so many tones of the enemy get rid of all that keeps us from communing with you forgive us cleanse us heal us heal heal the wounds then Nehemiah asks God to grant him success and mercy Nehemiah outrightly asks God to bless him and favor him In other words Nehemiah asks more of God's gracious hand upon him So beloved friends we all have seasons and circumstances May your awareness of God's gracious hand upon you grow May you trust in whatever circumstances that God's gracious hand is upon you So may God reassure you May his goodness and loving kindness be upon you. May God remember you when you're facing struggles and challenges and tones of the enemy. That you may stand firm, that you may remain focused on his goodness and love. And today we'd like to pray together with any of us whose bullying and tones of the enemy may have seem like they've had the final word maybe so overwhelming that they are struggling to move forward lord upon these brothers and sisters i pray that you may strengthen them that they may get a clear view of your presence in them that you may give them wisdom and strength to meet the situations they are facing with courage remaining true and faithful to how you're leading them and you will for sure strengthen them and you will help them and the walls shall be repaired and rebuilt and the enemy shall speak no more i pray that you can release and help and empower and cover your people that they may live in the shelter of the most high and abide in the shadow of the almighty that you oh god may be a refuge and a fortress to them that they may be the god that you may be the god in whom they trust oh lord may you deliver us from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence may you cover us with your pinions and under your wings may we find refuge oh god may your faithfulness be to us a shield and a buckler that we may not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday be to us a rock and a salvation strengthen our hands and lord grant us success in the journeys you've called us to be help us live true to the aim you have for us In the name of God the Father Son and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. And amen.